can we just get back to normal? I mean, isn't that the question we're all asking right now? Can we just get back to normal? So personally, here's how I've been feeling this in my life. So I had a trip planned with, with my wife, Heather. This was our first trip for more than a day without our kids since having our first child seven, eight years ago, eight years ago now. It was going to be awesome. I was feeling emotionally tired, just wanting a break for a while, and then it was canceled. And since then, I've worked harder than I was before when I wanted a break, having to make adjustments on the fly right and left, then quick figure out Good Friday and Easter online, even though we planned on something different, and then make some heart-wrenching decisions surrounding Joey and COVID-19 and on and on. And, and many of you are thinking right now, yeah, you know, well, I've got it worse, Matt. I lost my job. I lost my friend. I lost a loved one. My income is really uncertain moving forward. My kids are in my hair 24-7. I can't, I don't get to escape at work from the kids like you. And here's, here's what I want to challenge you with. Stop it. Stop comparing your trouble and your suffering to mine and other people. Because here's the deal. It's all hard. It is all difficult. Throw away those scales. We all live in a hard, challenging time in history. And beyond that, we live in a really broken, messed up, sinful world. So it is hard. And we're all desiring the same thing. And that's just to get back to normal. But what if God, what if God desires for us not to get back to normal? What if he knows what is best for us and that is actually a new normal? God's desire is to deliver you in the mess, not necessarily from the mess. And we're gonna see that this morning in Exodus 14. We're taking a break from Genesis this week uh, so we can just pull over and, and address what's going on in our world and, and find some hope from the Bible. So let's look at Exodus 14, starting in verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharath between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. By, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Fast forward to verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, 
fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. God delivers Israel from this mess in the, in the verses that follow in a dramatic fashion. But we're not going to get there today. We're not going to go there today because we are in the middle of the mess. Some people would spend the rest of their message promising you deliverance from the mess in a big dramatic way like this. And I think that that is ridiculous. God did that then, not necessarily now though. God might do that. He can do that. He might deliver you from your mess today. I hope he does, right? He could perform a miracle. Coronavirus, gone. Your problem's just gone. Jesus could come back and make everything right. You could die today and immediately be with Jesus in heaven if you've trusted in him. And God will deliver you one day from your suffering and trouble. Don't get me wrong. It'll be amazing. You'll be with Jesus forever if you are his and you've trusted in him. But even before God delivers Israel in Exodus 14 from the mess by parting the Red Sea and and destroying the Egyptians, God offers deliverance in the mess while they're trapped by the sea. And God offers deliverance to us in the mess as well while we're waiting for that sure deliverance from the mess. See, God doesn't just say, hey, I forgive you. I died on the cross for you. I rose from the dead. I forgive you and I promise to deliver you someday. But until then, good luck suffering. No, God doesn't do that. So I want to show you in this text and from some things that Jesus said, three ways that God offers us deliverance in the mess. Number one, accept that God has allowed the mess. Accept that God has allowed the mess. Here, God placed them literally between a rock and a hard place. Their placement is repeated in verse one and verse nine for a reason. This is very specific. There's the Egyptians over here. There's a sea over here and there's mountains surrounding them. They're literally between a rock and a hard place. They are trapped, but God put them there. God led them to that spot. This was no accident. We are in the same spot today. We're between a rock and a hard place with all the trouble going on around us. And we're waiting for promised deliverance. But the Israelites, they struggled to accept that God planned this mess for a reason. Look at verse 11 and 12. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what you said? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Israelites were struggling to accept that God planned this mess for a reason. And they do this in three ways. First, they question God. The verse, verse 11, beginning of verse 11, they say, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? 
They're not just asking why though of God. This isn't just questioning God. They're attacking God. They're attacking his goodness. You just brought us out here so that we could have proper graves. Either way, you were gonna kill us. This isn't just questioning God. This is rebellion. This is untrusting. This is arrogant questioning. And then they accuse God at the end of verse 11. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Now they're attacking God's sovereignty, his sovereign plan. What have you done to us as if they knew better than God? You don't have any idea what you're doing, God. That's what they're saying. And then thirdly, they say, I told you so, God. Verse 12, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. We told you this was gonna happen, God. We told you. Everything really is too good to be true, it seems, with you. We're brought into a conversation here that's referred to in Exodus 6, 9, where it says, Moses, excuse me, (laughs) Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Now we're brought into that conversation in 1412. They had a cynical and callous heart because they were so hurt. They were so badly hurt. They were in slavery. They were treated harshly. They had broken spirits. So it's understandable that they would question, what what are you doing, God, while they're in slavery in Egypt? And now they're out and God has led them out and delivered them from slavery. And they're still cynical and callous and going, we told you so, God. And aren't we much the same? We struggle to accept that God has allowed the mess he's put us in for a reason. We question God, God, you are not good or at least not as good as you say you are and you don't care about me at all or at least not near as much as you say you do. We accuse God. How dare you think you know what's best for me? I know what's best for number one. We say, I told you so, God. Maybe this is you. Maybe you've been so badly and harshly hurt by other people, by life in general. And you, you've said, I knew this was going to happen. I knew it was just going to get worse. You say, God, that you have hope and you have joy and then you just give me pain. And this is all of us sometimes. Wrestling with God to accept the mess that he has led us into. But here's the thing. God has given us permission to wrestle to doubt, to question, to lament. We saw it in the book of Habakkuk and the book of Psalms that we've gone through in the past year. God gives us permission to do that. But the Israelites doubting and questioning and lamenting led them to arrogant accusation of God. We are called to healthy doubt, questioning, lament, crying out that leads to humble trust of God, not arrogant accusation of God. It's a process accepting what God has allowed in our lives. So he invites us to walk alongside him in the process, be honest with him, to pour out our hearts to him. 
And that leads us to trust of God. This has happened in my own life recently. So we decided not to meet today, May 17th, and which was absolutely the right decision. And I'm, I'm 100% behind it. But I was struggling. And so I talked to Ryan Graydon. Many of you guys know him. And I was texting another friend about my conversation with Ryan. He's a, Ryan's one of our elders. And I said, I talked to Ryan Graydon this morning after our elder meeting on the phone. And I think he hit the nail on the head. I'm mourning and grieving the loss of something I love. I don't just work at a church. I love the church and the gathering of God's people to worship and connect. And the longer it doesn't happen, the longer the mourning and grieving goes on. I think just calling it what it is has already helped me deal with it better and walk forward. See, what I had to realize and what we need to realize that it is quite all right to not be all right. It is okay to not be okay right now. And it is okay to grieve and to mourn. It's like I needed permission to do that. It's okay to cry in your office when you stop denying that you're in grief and mourning like I did the other day. Everything isn't normal. Everything isn't fine. And that's the first step. Acceptance. Acceptance of what God has allowed, has placed in our lives. Acceptance, though, means quiet confident, humble trust in God. Listen to the humble trust that Moses invites the Israelites into even before he parts the Red Sea. Verse 13, and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. See, Moses is calling them to acceptance and to trust in God who led them into this mess. Now, we don't get to see how these Israelites respond in the mess. We just see that they're delivered from it. Some of them could have ignored Moses. Some of them could have denied Moses. Some of them could have threatened Moses for what he says here. But Moses clearly spells out how they can find deliverance in the mess. He says, you have only to be silent. He just says, shh, accept what God has led us into and trust him. Robert Morgan in his book, The Red Sea Rules says, when you are in a difficult place, realize that the Lord either placed you there or allowed you to be there for reasons perhaps known for now only to himself. See, that's acceptance. The first way that God offers deliverance in the mess is, is to, that just calling us to accept that God has allowed the mess. Secondly, shift your focus from the mess to the Savior. Look back at verse 10, Exodus 14:10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Israel literally started looking at the mess. The Egyptians are coming after them and they greatly feared. Why? Because they started focusing on the mess instead of the Savior. 
And you might say, well, at the end, it says that it led to them crying out to the Lord. Isn't that good? No, it's not. Because we just covered verses 11 and 12 right before this. And they're not just crying out to God in a healthy way. They're accusing God arrogantly, remember? When you focus on the mess and on the problem, you don't necessarily abandon God, although some people do. More often, though, you just turn on God. You wrongfully accuse him and forget that he is actually your savior. See, right now in 2020, May 2020, if all I do, if all you do is read the news and read some more news and read the news again and read the news again, it will just cause you fear, 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 fear in an increasing amount. But if we focus on Jesus, our savior, and his good news, and his word, what he says in the Bible, while still reading and watching the news with the Bible, with what God says, Jesus as our focus, we will still be afraid. But we will have real living hope in the mess, in our Savior, because we won't be focused so much on the mess, and will be more focused on him. See, the Israelites' focus was exclusively on the mess, which caused them great fear and great despair. But Jesus invites us into something else. He invites us to shifting our focus from that mess to himself. So I, I encourage you to flip over now to Matthew 11. We're going to shift over to Matthew 11 now, into what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight. And he says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, come to me. Come to me isn't a physical invitation. Jesus is already physically with you wherever you go, even though you do not see him. This is an invitation to shift our focus. What are we thinking about? What what are we focused on? We need to recognize what is already true. Jesus is right there in the mess. Corey Ten Boom was an incredible gal. During World War II, she hid Jews from from the Nazis and eventually ended up in a concentration camp because she got caught. She knows a thing or two about being in a mess and suffering more than probably most of us. And she said this, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at Christ, you'll be at rest. If you're struggling to find rest in the middle of the mess, focused on Christ. How do we do that? How do we focus on Christ, especially right now? I think you focus on Christ by turning up the voice of God in your life. Are you taking in God's word beyond what you're hearing right now during this message? Do you even let his words flow into your thoughts during the week? The Psalms especially right now, which are designed to help us pray, can cry out to God. In the middle of hardship, are you, are you running to those? 
turn up the voice of God in your life. Do what you need to. We have incredible opportunities. We have this service, even online. We have these women's Bible studies to help you turn up the voice of God. We have um, the Parent Q app to help you kids turn up the voice of God. We have a youth group going on on Instagram to help you turn up the voice of God. We have all of these opportunities to help you turn up the voice of God. But even beyond that, are you picking it up yourself? Are you hearing from God? But, but also, don't just turn up the voice of God. Turn down other voices in your life. Maybe even turn off other voices in your life for a while. Boundaries are loving gifts from God. This past week, I took some time off. And I didn't have my phone with me or any technology that whole time, which was really hard for me because I love technology. But it's exactly what I needed. I was already hearing from God. I, I was in his word and that was going well. I was turning up the voice of God. But what I needed to do was to turn down the voices of others around me. I don't know what that looks like for you, but maybe that's you. Maybe you have the word of God being poured into your soul and you just need to turn down those other voices. If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at Christ, you'll be at rest. Third and final way that I want to propose you can find deliverance in the mess is to enjoy the Savior. Enjoy the Savior. Again, in Matthew 11, verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Enjoy the Savior. The Westminster Catechism says man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That word enjoy is picked on purpose because it's what Jesus invites us into, to enjoy him. Maybe you've never thought of a relationship with Jesus like that. Maybe you've just thought of it just serving him, which it is serving him, or, or, or some other thing you have in your mind about following Jesus, but, but it is very much an enjoyment. It's full of joy. Jesus is your savior in the mess. So enjoy him in the mess. Enjoy his heart. We see in this scripture a call to enjoy his heart. It says that his heart is gentle and lowly. See, I'm convinced the reason we get too focused on the mess isn't because we forget Jesus is there. I think we do remember Jesus is there, at least most of the time. I think it's rather because we forget or don't really know or believe who the real Jesus is. It says that his heart is gentle and lowly. Did you know that? Do you believe that? He is gentle. He is tender. He is patient. He is kind. He is caring. He's not just waiting to let you have it. He doesn't just tolerate you. No. He, he, he likes you. You don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. But he likes us. For some reason, he is tender, he's patient. He is lowly, it says. Humble. Lowly means approachable. I mean, he was so approachable and became so accessible that he became human, flesh. And then died on a cross 
for us. I mean, he is so accessible more than you think. Think of a, a, a teacher you've had. A teacher who just, who just patiently taught you. Maybe kids, you, you had a teacher like that this year. Adults, maybe you can just think of one, but someone who just came alongside of you and even when they had to challenge you and correct you, you never once doubted their heart that they were gentle and humble and kind and patient. See, think of that person and you're getting there, except a million times better with Jesus. That is the real Jesus. There's a saying that says, you know, when you prick someone, they bleed hard work or they bleed patience or strength or something like that. But that's what it means when it's talking about Jesus's heart here in this scripture. You prick Jesus, he bleeds gentle and lowly. Enjoy Jesus by recognizing, realizing, and experiencing his true heart. Next, enjoy the Savior by enjoying his rest. It says you will find rest for your souls. This isn't necessarily physical rest here. I've been plenty rested physically and been completely exhausted. Do you know what I'm saying? This is rest for your soul. This is talking about confident assurance that your soul is secure in Jesus Christ because of what he did for us. This goes beyond emotions here even. This is resting in the work of Christ on the cross for me right now. Rest really is not a place. It's a person. Come to Christ daily, moment by moment, and enjoy that he has made you secure in him. Nothing brings greater security. Nothing brings greater rest than to know and remember that you are eternally forgiven and his. Enjoy his heart, enjoy his rest, and lastly, enjoy his work. Yeah, I said that right. Enjoy his work. It's, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A yoke was something in agriculture at that time. It's this wooden beam that helped oxen bear the weight together as they would pull a plow out in the field. But it says, Jesus says, my yoke is easy. That means that it is good and kind. It doesn't mean that it's, it's, it's a breeze. It means that it's good and it's kind. And it says his burden is light. That means it's lighter than it was before. This is not saying, Jesus is not saying that following him will be easier, will make your life easier than it was before you came to know him. It doesn't promise that at all. It doesn't say, he's not saying that it won't require gut-wrenching sacrifice because it absolutely does and will. He is saying that the hard work and sacrifice is good and satisfying work because it's driven by a gracious savior, Jesus, who is gentle and lowly. It's not driven by the harsh taskmaster that was the law in the Old Testament leading up to Christ the rule book that no one could measure up to. It's a harsh taskmaster because you just, you can never please him. But Jesus comes in and goes, no, I am gentle and lowly. My yoke is good. My burden, my work is light compared to that. 
working from acceptance from him rather than for acceptance. You're already accepted. You don't have to work for it. It's already been accomplished by him. You just are working from that acceptance from him. Enjoy working for, obeying, and living for Jesus, even in the mess, because it's good, satisfying, rewarding work. John 16, I have said these things, Jesus says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. See, what if God's desire is not for us to get back to normal, but to live in the reality of a new normal where more and more we find deliverance in the mess while we hopefully and confidently wait for deliverance from the mess. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the deliverance that you're gonna give us someday, but I pray that in this mess, you would help us to enjoy you. You would help us to accept what you've placed before us and that you would help us to shift our focus on you, God. Change our hearts. Encourage us as we walk with you, gentle and lowly Jesus. In your name I pray, amen.